You're listening to The Beacon Hill Report with Senator Joan Lovely, hosted by Walt Kosmowski. Hi, welcome to The Beacon Hill Report with Senator Joan Lovely. I'm your host, Walt Kosmowski. Senator Lovely, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's nice to be back. It's always a pleasure to have you here in the BevCam studio. Thank you. And uh, before we start our discussion today, Senator, uh, let's just remind our audience uh, that you represent the 2nd Essex District. Right. And tell us the towns that you, the five towns that you represent, Senator. So I represent Beverly, Danvers, Peabody, Salem, and Topsfield. Okay, so you represent five communities, yes. and they're all... They're all contiguous, right? Does Toffshield can yeah? It they, is to yeah. Danvers, yes. To, to Danvers, okay. Well, let me let me start right off. I'm going to embarrass you a little bit. Um, I I saw here in the paper where you were uh, honored, uh, and I'm going to read this. Senator Lovely, honored for work on behalf of people with disabilities. State Senator Joan Lovely was honored as Legislator of the Year by the Massachusetts Devel Developmental Disabilities Council at its 38th annual legislative breakfast. Congratulations on that. Thank you. And so tell us, what, what, uh, what kind of work have you been doing with persons with disabilities? What, what has the state been doing for this particular population? So I've been working with the uh, intellectual disabilities population and with the Massachusetts ARC and with the, with the council. And I was very honored to receive the Legislator of the Year Award. I didn't know it was coming. Um, you know, this is just a passion of mine. And I uh, want to just be able to continue to get resources uh, back to families for respite care and in particular the Turning 22 program. So what happens, um, you know, with young adults as they're graduating from high school at the age of 22, they have robust services um, at the high school level, and then they graduate, and a lot of those services, those educational services, go away. Mm -hmm. And so families are left with, where is my loved one going for additional services? So the 20, Turning 22 program puts those services into place for adult day uh, rehab programs, and the like, some, some uh, working programs. So I want to make sure that we continue to have those resources as, as these uh, young adults, again, age out of the system and what's next for them. Yeah. Now, are you finding that with uh, more young adults staying, uh, staying with their parents now or returning to, to the nest, as it were, how does that affect this? So a lot of these, this population do stay at home um, and live with parents, but again, we need to put the resources in place to make sure that they are going to be able to be independent. Maybe it's living in group homes, maybe it's living on their own, depending on, on the level of the disability. So again, the resources there to make that happen. Right. Now, I'm going to uh, change a little bit here and, uh, and uh, mention I have a, 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 a copy of a newspaper article here. Uh, where um, you have um, uh, are the Senate lead negotiator, and I'll, I'll just hold that up and, and have our camera person uh, zoom in on that. Um, and uh, advocates make another push for updated public records law. And um, the article uh, basically says, I'll mention that, uh, let me read that, uh, a six-member panel is trying to iron out Differences between proposals to improve access to records, limit how much state and local governments can charge, and set deadlines for agencies to respond to requests.
for information. So I, I'd like to ask you, what, um, what does a conference committee do? Because a lot of people may not understand what, what a conference committee means. And, and, and secondly, specifically, what is this public records? What is all this about? So when a bill is passed in the State House, um, sometimes the bill, the House bill, might be different from the Senate bill. So those differences have to be ironed out in a conference committee. So both the Speaker of the House and the Senate President will, uh, will appoint conference committees on each side. Okay. It's uh, made up of three members from the House, three members from the Senate. It is bipartisan. So I am the Senate uh, chair of the conference committee to reconcile the two differences, the differences between these two bills. Mm -hmm. uh, together with my uh, House counterpart, uh, Representative Peter Cocott from Northampton. We actually both um, are chairs of the State Administration and Regulatory Oversight Committee that oversaw this whole public records bill. So now we're charged with reconciling the bill and coming up with, uh, with a, one bill that both the House and Senate can support and we'll send it off to the governor. Particularly to public records, um, it's a little dry subject, but it's a very necessary and important subject. Um, our public records laws have not been updated in over 40 years. So think about it, 40 years ago, we didn't have internet, we didn't have email. And so the, the current law is written really for um, how things happened over the last 40 years, but really we're woefully behind in a, uh, from many states in this regard. So we're updating the law. And um, so a public record, what's a public record? Anything that the, a public official, elected or otherwise, work for the public, um, those records become public. Not all, though. Um, any information that would have someone's social security number on it or any other um, personal identifying information would be exempt mm -hmm. from this. So we're working right now to, again, update it, bring it into uh, current compliance with, again, email, the internet, we would like to get as many records online as possible so that someone doesn't need to make a public records request. What type of records are those? Right. Um, planning board meeting minutes, city council, this is all local stuff, selectmen uh, meeting minutes, uh, mm -hmm. any type of board or commission, all of that gets put up online. Mm -hmm. um, any types of, you know, people may be interested in, in email exchanges. Um, those are also public record. What's interesting that I will mention is when I was a city councilor in Salem for 15 years, uh, local elected uh, uh, officials have to comply with public record and open meeting law. Mm -hmm. The state house is exempt. Is that right? It's, that's right. So I actually would like to see that change uh, at some point because I've been trained that way. So in my personal right. Senate office, if someone's looking for information and I've had people make public records requests and say, what, what do you want? The only thing that I wouldn't be able to share is uh, sensitive information about constituents that are calling maybe about um, substance abuse issue or domestic violence issue okay. or something like that. Wouldn't share that information. Anything that compromises personal. Right, um, exactly. Yeah, okay. but, but, you know, we, it, we're here to work for the public, uh, to be transparent, and anything that that, that type of activity should be public. Mm -hmm. Now, does this actually mean that, that old records that are actual pieces of paper with typing on them that are stored away somewhere, these all have to be scanned so they can be put in a, a database that's searchable by that's, online? That is the best way mm -hmm. to be able to do this now. But we do recognize that cities and towns um, have limited resources, especially maybe a tiny town out in western Massachusetts of maybe sure. four or 500 people sure. where their uh, town hall is open part-time maybe just a couple times a week, uh, to the other example, which would be Boston, that probably has 
has its own public records division. Sure. So we're trying to um, um, craft this to make sure that we are accommodating uh, not only the public who's looking for the record, but also the keeper of the record and how that they can, again, comply with it. Mm -hmm. So we are encouraging people to the best of their ability to be able to get as much online. But again, Western Massachusetts, some of them don't sure. have internet. They don't have broadband. They're sure. not, they don't have the, 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 uh, the waves out there, the wavelengths. Yeah. So. Now, uh, what, how far back like, would you go? Would you go back to the 50s, the 40s, the 30s, or back Whatever's, to the 19th century? Whatever, <laughs> the has, whatever record is public and uh, however old it is, yeah. um, and it's in the control of a city or town hall yeah. or a state agency, um, is, would be would be fair game. Yeah. Yes. Well, well let, me, let me ask you uh, on another topic. Uh, you uh, were appointed uh, to the Senate Ways and Means Committee this past January. Yes. So tell us about what does the Senate Ways and Means Committee do and what have you specifically been doing as, as part, of that, uh, a part of that committee? So the Ways and Means Committee, both House and Senate, and I'm, so I'm on the joint committee mm -hmm. um, together with House members and Senate members and the Senate committee. Uh, it's, one, it's, a, it's the same. Um, charged with anything to do with any spending of dollars okay. um, has to go through the Ways and Means Committee. So if someone files a bill, for example, I filed a bill, a homeworks bill, um, that has to do with being able to create um, additional funding for the, the children that are living in shelter and motels right now. Right, we talked about that on a previous show. Right, now. so what, the, what, what happens is these children go back to the motel or hotel or shelter and don't have the opportunity for after-school pro programs, I've written a bill to be able to allow that to happen. That has a dollar figure. Right. We're looking at between 800000 and a million dollars to allow that to happen, you know, statewide. Mm -hmm. So that would have to be vetted through, and it actually is currently in Senate Ways and Means Committee to see if we're going to be able to afford to do that. Mm -hmm. Now, how many, how many people are actually on this joint um, committee? There's many. Um, there, 25, 26. I mean, it's a big committee. Mm -hmm. It's a very big committee. So, mm -hmm. um, and you know, and we meet jointly. So, as a part of the budget process, we had eight public hearings across the state, from Springfield as far west as Springfield and further, um, all the way you know in our area in the Boston area. I attended a few of those, mm -hmm. and um, we again we open those to the public, allow the public to come in and talk mm -hmm. about what they feel about any of the any any issue um, mm -hmm. that affects has a money component yeah. to it. Yeah. Generally speaking, if you are appointed to a committee such as this, uh, is, is there a time limit uh, as to how long? Like you're, you're going up for re-election now in, in yes. November. And if you get re-elected, do you stay? Are you grandfathered into that committee? Or do you have to be reappointed? Yes, it's a reappointment. Okay. Um, you know, again, by the Senate president and by the, the speaker, you know, House and Senate. So I would make that uh, my request that I would want to remain on the committee. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, I want to uh, talk about a, a topic here that uh, recently has gotten uh, a, a lot of coverage and has been the source of a lot of uh, debate here in our community. Uh, we're sitting here today is Friday. It's uh, April 22nd. And I have here uh, the headline of the Salem News from actually uh, yesterday. Kinder Morgan abandons pipeline plans. And uh, according to the article in, in, in the paper here, they, they mention the fact that they did this because um, uh, the, the project was no longer feasible because of lack of demand and so on and so forth. And I know that according to the article here, 
the pipeline was scheduled to go through at least two of your communities, right. Peabody and Danvers. Correct. So uh, bring us up to date on this. What 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 does this mean for the for the residents? And what what's what's the overall picture here? Why why did this happen? And maybe what will the future hold? Well, first I want to say thank you to all the residents really across the state. Very very strong contingent in in our area. Um, but also all the way across the state, I've heard from residents, you know, way out in Sandusfield, Massachusetts, a little tiny town that's being greatly affected by this as well, um, for voicing their opposition, for banding together, for educating themselves on this. Um, when you have a pipeline coming through your community or through your state, it's really guided at the federal level, level from the Federal Energy Regulatory Committee. Mm -hmm. um, so it, it may not, the state may not have a lot of say in this. However, the residents uh, really banded together and voiced their opposition. Uh, also, the Attorney General released a report just a couple of months ago and questioned whether we needed the gas to be able to come into the state. Right. Did we have enough here already? Um, and the, and the, another piece of this is Kinder Morgan um, was thinking of uh, actually um, exporting that gas. Right. So there's a pipeline in, in place that goes up to the, uh, Nova Scotia and the Canadian Maritimes and to actually bring that, put the gas through, head it up to Canada, and then send it over to the European market. Let me, let me ask you now, since you brought that up, there, there was a, a, a bit of a controversy that, that uh, some people said that they needed to bring the, the, the gas in here because of the consumption in our area, mm -hmm. and others said, no, it was, being, uh, it, it was coming through here so it could be sent out to, for export. Well, was any of it slated to be used in this area? Or, uh... Yes, and you know what? We, we still do have to um, have adequate gas and, yeah. and actually really expand our renewables as well with mm -hmm. wind and energy and the governor's looking at bringing hydro down from Canada so we have to expand our portfolio we cannot rely just on gas mm -hmm. we can't rely just on on oil um, coal is being phased out now right. so there may be another conversation I don't know um, but but how do we get you know adequate gas reserves into this area to be able right. to again for the consumer um, but essentially for this Kinder Morgan has decided to abandon to its attempt to be able to bring this gas pipeline across. Mm -hmm. One other piece of this that I think was uh, also a key piece, so again in my committee um, we had an article 97 filing by Kinder Morgan. They want to put a, a lateral out in Massachusetts. Tell, tell us what that is. What is that? A mean? lateral is, um, so, so there, there's already existing pipelines that come through mm -hmm. and out again in Sandusfield, little tiny Sandusfield, where they have an old growth forest. Um, that's a forest that's 200 plus years old. Um, there's a pipeline that goes through there now. Kinder Morgan, um, Connecticut needs more gas. They're requesting more gas. So Kinder Morgan would like to place a lateral. It's about a mile long, mm -hmm. the pipe, that will feed from its existing pipeline in Sandusfield, but it'll have to go through old growth forest to get into western Connecticut. Oh, okay. And the, the, because it's an old growth forest, it's protected under what they call an Article 97 protection. So what that means is um, they have to petition the state legislature and get a two-thirds vote to be able to lift that protection. Mm -hmm. uh, it came through our committee last fall. We said, no, we're not mm -hmm. gonna grant this. Kinder Morgan did file a lawsuit, and I believe that will continue because that, that is separate from this, the, the big pipeline that they were building. Uh, but this will be a case of first impression to see how strong that Article 97 yeah. protection is. As a, as a part of the, the pipeline, had they decided to continue with it, they would have needed over 100 more Article 97 filings. Oh, wow. Really? Right, 
Right, mm -hmm. so we don't know if that had something to do with this. They're saying it was for economic okay. reasons. So this lateral that you were talking about that was ultimately meant to feed Connecticut yes. needs, that's still on the table. So that is, I believe, is still on the table, okay. yes. Yeah. And, and another question, uh, you mentioned you know, changing from uh, coal-fired to gas-fired plants. We know that the big uh, coal plant in, in Salem mm -hmm. uh, it was torn down and now it's being retrofitted for natural gas. Was, was any of the, the gas that would have come through with the Kinder Morgan line slated to be used by that, or is that a separate separate issue? So the, the, gas, the gas plant in Salem was being thought of and... and, and um, planned, I think, before, this, before, this, before okay. this was filed. So I don't believe that that will affect the plant's ability to be able to, you know, get enough gas to feed that plant. However, we do still need to be mindful um, that we do have enough gas to, to come into gas sure. customers. Absolutely, absolutely. So let me, um, let me change uh, topics now. Uh, there's been an awful lot of dialogue uh, uh, recently um, at workshops and, and presentations about the opioid crisis. And just recently, the, govern, the governor signed a bill, I think within the last month or so. March 14th. Uh, 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 addressing the opioid crisis. So tell us, what exactly does that bill do, uh, Senator? So I actually attended that signing. And that was extremely emotional signing. Uh, yeah, the um, governor actually shed a did. tear, didn't he? He did, yeah. uh, because, um, you know, we're reading just this past week in the Salem News two more opiate deaths. And, yeah. and you'll see when you read these obituaries that families are now saying how, what happened with their loved one. And, you know, now in my, my work in the Senate, I'm the, last year I was the chair of, um, of mental health and substance abuse. This term I'm the, the, the vice chair. We're doing a lot of work in this area, but just to talk to families, local families or families all across our state uh, that are struggling with their loved ones, that are struggling with addiction. So this bill uh, limits the initial, if you're going to get an opiate prescription, say right. for, uh, you know, you had your wisdom teeth pulled, um, you're gonna, it's limited to a seven-day supply. Wow. Um, if um, for minors, um, that's the initial prescription. Mm -hmm. For minors, it's limited to seven days. You have to go back to your doctor to get a new prescription. Mm -hmm. um, for people that are presenting to the emergency room or, or a clinic because they've either overdosed or they've had, to, had Narcan administered to them because mm -hmm. they were overdosing, now we require um, um, a substance abuse evaluation within 24 hours. We want to be able to feed people right into, oh, treatment. into the treatment. There's a lot of people that aren't ready for treatment. And mm -hmm. um, sometimes they'll go through seven, eight, nine different treatments before they finally say, okay, enough, I really uh, don't want to be addicted anymore. So this anymore. is a way to get people into there it's earlier a way to, before. Right, yeah. exactly. You know, we want to almost force people into treatment. Um, it allows patients to voluntarily reduce the amount of prescription. Again, you know, if they say, I don't need 30 Percocet, yeah. maybe I only need 10. Yeah. You can go to the pharmacy and say, I don't want to fill the whole prescription, I just want 10. It, requ it requires prescribers to educate um, patients about, you know, addiction. Right. About, you know, if you take this, you have to take it as directed. If you don't take it as a directed, or even if you do, sometimes people, are, they're just predisposed to, sure. to, an, to an addiction. Sure. Um, and it expands the prescription take-back program so that we don't have these prescriptions hanging around in medicine cabinets sure. or kitchen cabinets, wherever anybody, you know, it's, these are all unintended consequences. 
Nobody grows up to say, I want to grow up to be a drug addict. Yeah. It just doesn't happen. Yeah. This, all, this is very unintended that, that people are finding themselves in the throes of mm -hmm. major addiction. Mm -hmm. And so we've expanded beds. We're now going to be doing um, screening in high schools, voluntary screening for drugs and alcohol. So wh um, what does that mean? You, you show up at the nurse's office and say... Th well, they'll, they'll put the uh, state will be putting a program together mm -hmm. that, they'll, that high schools will then uh, administer. And again, it's voluntary on behalf of the students. Yeah. They don't have to. No one's being forced. Yeah. Um, but it may be an opportunity to open the conversation about, yeah. um, geez, I'm struggling with you know, drinking or I'm struggling with, you know, I'm taking prescription or I'm on heroin. Yeah. Um, you know, one of the um, most profound, uh, you know, I, I visit the Recovery High School, which is located which right, is here, right in Beverly, here in Beverly, right yeah. up the street mm -hmm. from here. Yeah. And um, boy, the work that they're doing there and saving lives. And these students are so brave, so yeah. much courage yeah. to be able to go to this high school because they have a particular issue with addiction, whether yeah. again, drugs or alcohol. Yeah. Um, and and how do we make sure that, that the kids that need to be there are going there? Um, and expand the conversation across, you know, middle schools too, middle school and high school, yeah. about saying, okay, you know what, this is where, really where you need to be. Very, yeah. It's a very loving, nurturing, and tough environment. Yeah. And kids come out clean, they graduate, and they go off to college or jobs. Yeah. yeah. And the idea here, I think, I, I see through these various provisions is to short circuit, you know, don't let things uh, fester and get people into, re into recovery, get people uh, help, get them into groups where, right. uh, so that, that... Even if you just wonder if your child may be experimenting with something, maybe the conversations with their primary care physician. Yeah. And just that open, honest conversation, and that just opens opens it up to saying, okay, uh, you know, there is some denial out there, of course. You don't want to think that your child might be the one that, you know, could be potentially having a yeah. problem or is having a problem, and it knows no social economic background. Mm -hmm. The poorest of the poor, richest yeah, of the rich, and everybody yeah. in between. Yeah, we, we know that from past history, yeah. Well, Joan, thank you for, thank you for that. Um, let me ask you about uh, recently the uh, Massachusetts Department of Transportation uh, released a new uh, rail schedule. Yes. I think a couple of weeks ago. Uh, it, it, and I guess the question for our viewers would be, uh, when does that go into effect and does that have any direct impact on, on Beverly commuters? It does. It's going into effect in, on May 23rd. And actually Beverly and Salem the both stations are actually going to see an increase in um, in trains. They're going to be adding um, th to the Monday to Friday um, uh, schedule three more inbound trains on this on the, it's called the Newburyport Rockport line, mm -hmm. and um, two more outbound trains, and um, that means one more inbound train for Beverly and Salem between six and nine a.m. They're no they're, they're and uh, one one outbound train more. One more outbound train for Beverly and Salem for for the four to eight p.m. So what's happening is, and and I want to again thank the commuters that are contacting our office. We have a couple that contact my office every single day <laughs> to give a report. It couldn't be we couldn't be more grateful because I'm not riding the commuter rail, yeah. but these folks are, and they're telling us um, where the where the discrepancies are, where the weaknesses are in the system. Sure. And so as a result, we've been able to feed this back to MassDOT and say, you, you know, for the, for the Rockport, Newburyport line, 
um, this is where we need to see it strengthened. Yeah. And so those commuters telling us their experience, their negative experiences, yeah. has helped us be able to talk to MassDOT again. Wonderful. and say, okay, yeah. this is where we need it. So anybody that's riding the commuter rail, please continue to call <laughs> us, uh, email us, let us know what your experience is, because we want to make sure it's, you know, there were so many problems. I mean, of course, with last winter, it just yeah. the system just blew apart yeah. and, and exposed yeah. really what was going wrong. So, yeah. and, and I understand uh, Beverly Depot is, what is it, the fifth? Uh, um, Salem's the second, and I think Beverly is the fifth, yes. Uh, busiest. Busiest. And yeah, in the system. In, in, the, whole, in the whole system, right. yeah. Right, Yeah, so a lot of people. We need to be able to get people to work or to school on time, Yeah. you know, in good, clean, um, you know, transportation, you know, cars and, um, you know, rail cars. Need to get them there. So, yeah, and I know I know the governor has made this a priority of he his. Has. Uh, absolutely, he especially has. after that winter. Actually, it's two winters ago because we is. just got through a kind of a mild winter, which Thankfully. was completely <laughs> different from that one. Right uh, now, a a anybody that that lives in Beverly uh, certainly knows that there's been an awful lot of road work, road construction, <clears throat> a lot of projects, the yes. so-called. One uh, A project, yep. uh, the the repaving of one twenty eight, a lot of uh, things going on. Now I understand that there's some new state funding that's available to Beverly for road repairs, and uh, maybe you can tell us how much has been allocated in this funding and what what it can be used for. So Beverly has been very aggressive at being able to get as much grant money as it can again to do the Rantoul Street project that they're doing now to do again one twenty eight. Uh, which is state road, uh, but to do a lot of local road projects. So every year the, uh, the governor releases and the legislature's, legislature releases $200 million total in chap what they call Chapter 90 money. Chapter 90 is our roadways and bridges. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, Beverly got there, gets their allotment. Um, let's see, I'm just looking at this. It was over almost $4.5 million went to the five communities that I represent. Um, and over a million for local transportation projects for Beverly. Um, and the money's distributed based on the miles of roadway that you have. Okay. So the more miles you have, the more money you're going to get. Okay. And also it's based on population and employment figures. Um, and again, Beverly does a great job at, uh, you've got a very, you've got a very, um, progressive mayor mm -hmm, um, sure. who worked in the legislature. Mm -hmm. yeah, it's um, been 10 he, years. <laughs> he did. He knows how it works and he knows where to find those dollars. And again, with a strong city council and, mm -hmm. and city government, um, Beverly's uh, ahead of the curve. Yeah. Now, the, the uh, repaving or reconstruction of section of 128, I think between exit 17 uh, to 20, and it, it, can you tell us, do, are you aware when is that supposed to start and when is that supposed to end and how, how comprehensive will that be? You know, I don't have the, the start and end date with me today, but I will tell you that, again, the city's me meeting with the residents. Yeah. As, a, as a result of that project, the, the state had to take down some trees um, and they're going to be re replacing the trees, but the neighbors along um, the neighborhoods that, you know, kind of mm -hmm. from um, Centerville right up to North North Beverly, the Raymond Farms area, mm -hmm. um, have noticed that, that the noise increased because some of these trees were thinned, yeah. uh, if you will. And so now the state is taking a look at, okay, what can we replace those with? Okay. One thing, a, an evergreen as, a, as opposed to a deciduous so that um, it'll have 
you know, um, all year round. All year round. Yeah. And uh, maybe there may be some opportunity. I'm not sure where the conversation may be going with regard to those tall walls that they build along some of the um, roadways. You've mm -hmm. seen some built in oh, Danvers yeah, yeah. a couple years ago. Um, so starting those conversations to, again, to be able to buffer residents who live near the highway sure. from the noise. So I don't know exactly when that's going to be starting, though. Okay. But they're having the conversation now. Well, thank you for that. Now, uh, we, we've talked a lot about uh, a lot of uh, legislature and a lot of issues here in the state. What, what are your uh, personal legislative priorities? I mean, uh, have you sponsored or co-sponsored certain bills? Where, uh, can you tell us about that? I have. You know, and I'd be, I'd be happy to talk about um, one of them is pay equity. You hear that a lot, right? Mm -hmm. Pay equity. And, and, and pay equity here in... Um, in Massachusetts or really across the country, um, a woman makes 82 cents um, on the dollar that a man makes. Um, it's worse for uh, African-American women. I think it's in the 60-odd cent range. And for Latinas, La Latino, Latino mm -hmm. women, it's in the 50-cent range. Mm -hmm. So um, we've talked about pay equity. We've got laws on the books. And we're still working towards closing that gap so that for comparable work, a woman makes the same as a man. Actually, um, Pay Equity Day was just recently, um, a couple of weeks ago, and um, and what it what it is is it it says how long a woman has to work into the following year, and I think it was in April, oh, um, you know, mid-April actually. Uh, just last week, um, to earn what a man makes in one year. Yeah. So, I'm going to stop you right there, Sam, because sure. I, I've just gotten the signal that we are we are very close to running out of time. But okay. I do want to give you the opportunity um, to let our viewers know uh, if they want to reach your office. Yes. Uh, we have, I think, we have a phone number and we have a, uh, a website or a or an email. There's the phone number: six one seven seven two two. One four one zero, and where does that ring? Where does that actually? That uh, rings right at my my Senate office in the State House. In the State House, okay. And we have a, uh, and that's your email address, Joan dot Lovely, at M A S M A Senate. So it's M A Senate and S E N A T E dot gov. Right. And uh, for our viewers out there, what what kind of things uh, is there any any limit as to what they can call your office about or? Uh, call, call my office about anything and everything, and we welcome uh, as much commentary as we can get. It helps me to do my job to represent the, the constituents that put me in office, uh, represent the district. The needs of Beverly might be different from the needs from Topsfield or, you know, or from Salem um, or, or Beverly or Peabody yeah. or, or Danvers. So um, please, I would ask that people please call me, uh, email. Um, I'm on Facebook. Send a Facebook message. Um, any way that you want to be able to contact us, let us know how you're feeling about any issue on any topic. It's really welcome. Well, and of course, a show like this that we do certainly helps you get the message back to your, to your constituents. It does, and thank you for the opportunity. Well, thank you, Senator, for joining us. Uh, and uh, to our viewers, you've been watching the Beacon Hill Report with Senator Joan Lovely. I'm your host, Walt Kosmowski, and we'll see you next time. The Beacon Hill Report was produced by BevCam in association with Senator Lovely's office. Copyright 2016.